You're listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. Hello, and welcome to Future Thinking from Stylus. I'm your host, Christian Ward, and on this week's episode, I'll be talking to Cheryl Connolly, Chief Futurist at the Ford Motor Company, about the latest edition of Ford's annual trend report. The report explores the macro trends set to shape the next few decades of consumer engagement, from the future of family to shifts in the way that we work and socialize. And stick around to the end for our next big opportunity feature, where we highlight a vital consumer need or challenge that's yet to be solved. But first, we kick off with the innovation of the week, where we showcase the one big new innovation you need to know about right now. This week, it's real-time social media TV. To explain more, here's Matt Zara, Stylus's brand engagement researcher. So Channel 4, which for those that don't know, is a broadcaster in the UK, has teamed up with Instagram for a series called You Do You, which follows a group of young creatives in Manchester who have called Cindy's Place. And they're kind of trying to make a name for themselves in the Manchester music scene, which all sounds very interesting. But the unique thing about it is it's the first real-time social reality series told entirely through social media. So the whole thing lives on Instagram. So there's a singer-songwriter, a fashion student, people like that, and they all document their lives in real time. And they're using the functionality of the app. So they'll be posting Instagram stories, reels, feed posts that will kind of follow their journey as they attempt to make it. And then every Sunday, a more edited 10-minute video is posted on the account, which compiles clips from the cast members. I think with TV figures dwindling for the past decade or so, I mean, if you look at the stats, I think from about 2010 to now in the UK, the amount of time Gen Z and millennials spend watching TV is actually halved. So it makes sense to kind of meet people where they're already watching content, which of course is social media. I also think it speaks to kind of the rise in unfiltered content. People are kind of sick and tired of the cuts of glossy reality TV, like The Bachelor and that kind of thing. And they're looking for things that's a bit more real. Channel 4 aren't the first brand to take their content to social media in this way. Last year, Elf Cosmetics, which is a makeup brand, actually launched a TikTok native show that we also covered. But Channel 4 is continuing to do interesting things with social media. And they actually recently produced a branded content series with French fashion house, Balmont. And as they pioneer in this area, we expect other broadcasters to follow suit. Every year, the Ford Motor Company publishes a report looking at key trends for the year ahead that will shape consumer behavior and brand engagement. Cheryl Connolly, Ford's chief futurist, joined me to discuss this year's edition. And we focused on three major themes for 2022, including diversity and inclusion and the changing nature of family. But we kicked off by discussing Ford's findings on the future of information and knowledge, and whether in the next few years it will become commonplace for people to digitally capture and store all aspects of their lives in a bid for virtual immortality. I think that there's lots of reasons to be worried about the way we process information today. We have unprecedented access to data, to information, but we don't have greater wisdom or knowledge from it. Like, I think that's crazy. You know, in fact, there are studies that say, like, since Victorian times, the average IQ has dropped 1.6 points, which is mind boggling, right? Like, shouldn't we be coming smarter? Shouldn't we have learned more? And I really started to wonder about what was behind that. And that's kind of what gave rise to this, you know? So I wanted to ask, like in the information knowledge, like, 
Could we imagine a future where there's no limits to what the brain can comprehend? I mean, there are experts that say that our brain has the capacity to hold the entirety of the internet. Our problem is processing, getting the information in and then getting the information out. And the research we've done in this space suggests that smart devices have really impaired our ability. It's making it harder for our brain to do that heavy lifting, not easier, which is definitely not what we signed up for, right? I mean, I think of the great irony is that these digital devices were sold to us on the premise that they would save us time. And they actually do quite the opposite. We have good reason to be concerned about like how our data is captured, how it's stored, where it's used, where it's sold. But I wondered like what could be reason that would motivate us to want that to happen. And some of this idea came out of a TED talk I saw from Roger Ebert several years ago. So Roger Ebert, the, the late film critic, and you may recall towards the end of his life, he had gone through cancer and he had lost a good part of his jaw, which had impaired his ability to speak, you know, and a man who had made his living by sharing his opinion no longer could speak. And so he talked about his journey through that. And so in the early days, they were still doing like the, the voice the computerized voice. And he tried adopting it and he found it very uncomfortable, very isolating, just no emotional connection to it. And his wife said, you know, you have years and years of voice and audio clips, you know, audio and visual clips. Why can't we use the, those as an inventory and then string together the words that you want to do? And so from that idea, it sprung out to like this archive that we're all creating, you know, you hear anecdotally stories about lost loved ones and people hold on to their Facebook accounts. They listen to, you know, my best friend lost her father and she saved um, her last, the last voice message that she had from him. I wish I had had the wisdom to do that. I've lost both my parents. And I started to wonder like what I wouldn't get to have that opportunity to, you know, it's not an authentic engagement, but it's a good simulated engagement to like, and we have so much, you know, with the, the deep fakes, so, you know, everyone's worried about the deep fakes. And I'm like, but what if the deep fake was someone that you loved, you know, and they were encouraging you in a moment of need, they already have, I wish I could remember the name of the app, but one of my colleagues for a birthday present for her mother, she put an old photo of her mother from her teenage years into it. And then she could animate the photo. And I, when she told me that, it gave me chills in a way that made me uncomfortable. It made me uncomfortable because I was like, that would be very painful for me to see it. But then I kind of got through it as we started talking through it. So that's where we started wondering, like, if you had the ability to capture your life on video, you know, and save it for posterity state, would you do it? So when you look at our youngest generation, Generation Z, all the way up to baby boomers, Generation Z is much more willing. You know, over half the people we spoke to, uh, millennials and Generation Z, but then it drops down to 41% uh, for Gen X and 31% for boomers. And, you know, not to be morbid here, but you would also think like, if I'm a boomer and I'm approaching my end of life, I think I would mo more would want to capture that sort of legacy. Perhaps now we could, we could move on to identity and belonging because you're talking here in this section about institutionalized ideas about age, gender, race, ethnicity, religion, and so on, are increasingly rooted out in favor of greater inclusivity. So it'd be great to start with by kind of explaining what that means in, in sort of like in reality, how is this I move towards greater inclusivity manifesting? 
I think that we're looking for a new language to have this conversation. And certainly with the LGBTQI cohorts, I think that, you know, we've changed our conversation. And one thing that came to mind for me was this idea that like in my age, you know, in my lifetime, I can remember as a child when there was a theme of homosexuality on a television show, it would start with a parent warning, caution, you know, cautionary parental warning about the subject matter of this of this after school special you're about to watch. And I feel like we've come a really long way since then. No, it's not my personal battle, so I don't want to make light of it, but it did seem like there was a watershed moment. And I know parents of people who have transgender children and as they face challenges, what we find ourselves saying is, but thank God, thank God that those challenges are in modern times and they weren't 10 years ago. And so we started to wonder, like, where could that take us? You know, because the labels are really the thing that use, that they define us, but they also divide us. And so what happens if we like let go of those labels? We started thinking about it. And then we looked at what was happening with, you know, the number of countries that were saying, you don't need to put your gender on your passport. You know, this universally recognized form of identification. I thought that was a major milestone to talk about the direction that things will go. So we frame this concept in the, in the frame of inclusivity, but we're not talking about like everyone becoming generic, but that those labels aren't used to divide us anymore. They're not used as a informal structure of hierarchy. I did want to talk um, finally about the family stuff, because I, again, I think this is really crucial stuff for you know the, the kind of people who subscribe to stylists and people who are listening to the podcast concepts of family that are, that are set to change again love to hear about the, the, the research and, and, what, and what it threw up and and how you think those changes may affect the way that the brands approach the family i think there's something really interesting happening here the n- number of young people that say that they're not interested in marriage is shocking we have people that say that the um Marriage will become an outdated concept, I think is surprisingly high. And it's, you know, of course, bias is younger than you would expect, which I think is a really big suggestion about, you know, what we can expect in the future. The number of people that say, do you want to raise children, have children of your own? Um, The number of people that said no to it is one in four, one in four worldwide, which is, I think, quite staggering. And when you ask them why they don't want to have children, and I say this as a parent, I think they're spot on. 45% say it's too much stress. 40% say it's too expensive. Uh, But then there's 61% of those who said that they don't want to have children um, say it's just because they're not interested in being a parent. And that's, you know, that might, of course, change with age. But we also know that people are worried about things like the environment, you know, and what that what will happen, that it makes them worry about the children's future. With the LGBTQI, you know, discussion, I think it also had people really examining what marriage means and whether it's needed. And 45% of people of all ages said that marriage would eventually become an outdated concept in, within their own country. So I, I think the notion of family is going to change. Now, added to that, the reason we, you know, I think also a big part of this is what's happening with aging population. So it's not in the final report, but I love this stat that says the first person to live to be 150 has already been born. You know, so like you or I could live for a century and a half. And it's not likely going to be me, but maybe my children, 
or my children's children. And that seems plausible, right? You know, we're at average, global average, so we're between 75 and 80, but it increases with technological advances, medical science, nutrition, health, physiology, and the quality of life is, but you can look to countries like Japan and go like, well, what happens when you're, you outlive your savings? What happens when you don't have people around to care for you? And I think that's a real concern. I mean, the United Nations would say that the, has, has said that the aging of the world's population is the greatest challenge that we will collectively face during our lifetime. And there's the economic and there's a the social side to it. And so we talked about there in a couple of years ago, we published in one of our books, this robot toy. It was like a fur covered pillow with a tail. I think it was called a QB. And it would, you would, you could pet it and it would purr. And if you didn't pay attention to it, it would make noises, but it was all about trying to fulfill that emotional connection. And I think this is probably going to be one of the most critical things that we find because we did research in the last two years that talked about the epidemic of loneliness that's happening worldwide. And this was happening before COVID. So in 2019, we found research that said 64% of Generation Z, those people 24 to 18, 24 down to 18, said that they were lonely at least once a week. And now that was one of those things that was counterintuitive because I thought, well, the high levels of loneliness is coming from the oldest population. But we found that baby boomers were half as likely to report loneliness. And so I think that's a very alarming trend. There are, of course, speculations. This is tied to technology, particularly social media. The American Pediatric Journal of Medicine put out a report that looked at 19 to 35-year-olds and found that those who spent two hours a day or more on social media were twice as likely to report loneliness than those who kept it to 30 minutes or less. The correlation hasn't been proven, but there are lots of research studies that are trying to show the causation. There's definitely a, undoubtedly a connection. And at the same time, I think we're going to have to become more comfortable with technology. And so as we start to humanize them and imagine you know, to be a companion, being a teacher, teaching, you know, social emotional skills. I think that that's something that we'll have to get more comfortable with. Now, the next big opportunity. This is where we look at consumer needs and gaps in the market that still need to be addressed by brands, businesses and startups. I asked Cheryl Connolly about this. I think this polarization that I see happening, the rise of nationalism, um, the tribalism, I do think it's something that businesses are going to have to really engaged in ways that they have never had before you know it used to be like you never brought up religion or politics like conversation and now it's hard to not bump into those topics and businesses have successfully stood on the sidelines i don't think every business needs to share their point of view indeed there are some customers a good number of customers that say i don't want to know i don't want to know the politics i don't want to know their beliefs but in terms of readiness i think brands need to know exactly where they stand before they're called to stand. And it's a strategic decision about whether you decided to share or not share, but you can't afford to scramble. That's what I think is gonna happen. And I think it's gonna happen in part, not just because of consumers, but because of employees. Employees wanna know those things. And the Edelman Trust Survey, I think last year for either 20 or 21 said that of the four pillars, um, business, government, and media, and employers, the one that, people were most inclined to believe in, to trust, was their employer. 
They trust their employer to do the right thing. And so how they decide to handle issues. COVID, I think, is probably a really great illustration of that. You know, how did how do you handle it? And I'm really proud of the way that Ford handled it. One is that Bill Ford, our executive chair and our CEO, came onto a company-wide webcast every week to tell us what they knew, what they're doing with that information, and how are they planning forward. So the transparency was great. And I, I think like, and this is a much older anecdote, but I'll share it with you. In 9-11, I remember, I remember very clearly the day driving into work. It was a beautiful sunny day in Metro Detroit. I drove into the office and I remember when I heard the news and it was unsettling and almost incomprehensible. And the people that were in my immediate circle, like we were kind of baffled, like, what do we do with this information? Like, do you sit at your desk and try to keep working? And at the time, the most senior leader in the building went from floor to floor, office to office, cube to cube, and asked everybody to go home. Well, actually, he didn't even ask us to go home. He said, he said, we want you to be comfortable. You are free to do whatever you want to do. But if that's what you want, if you want to go for home, if you want to stay, you're welcome to stay. But don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And I still remember it. I remember it because it was this moment of uncertainty and someone showed up and acted like that they were, they had it under control. Like it was going to be okay. I guess probably the bigger point about it is that like people are hungry for that kind of leadership. They're hungry for that sort of clarity. And whether you're an employee or a customer, people are really drawn to that sort of reassurance and confidence. I spoke to Julia Ahrens, Stylus's editor of Pop Culture and Media, about all this. I think the key thing to remember for any brand tackling social responsibility issues is that it all starts internally. It starts with your own people, your employees. I believe it's easy to think that your brand plays no role in current events and public concerns. But the fact of the matter is that if you have a certain number of staff, you will always have members of community impacted by public discussions. And I think like some recent examples of this, such as the walkouts at Netflix in response to trans rights and the Dave Chappelle comedy special or the sexual harassment and misconduct issues at Ubisoft internally, really illustrate how, yes, you can have issues within your company that then eventually bleed out to external communication and cause issues. But I think on the positive flip side here, it should make you realize that this also means most companies have the resources to position themselves in regards to social issues early on. So if you just reach out to your staff and establish where they stand and what communities they're connected to, you think have a great resource there to work with. That's it for this edition of Future Thinking and indeed for this season of Future Thinking. We'll be back in January with even more innovations, insights and interviews with industry thought leaders. In the meantime, I'd love to hear your feedback. On Twitter, we're at stylus underscore live and I'm at Christian Ward. And on Instagram, you can find us at We Are Stylus. See you next time. You've been listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. And if you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe to Future Thinking in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes as soon as they're available.